Y'all can have a seat. Oh, you're doing that anyways. Good job. Great. Well, guys, my name is Rudy Hartman, like Michael so kindly introduced me. And I know we, we just came out of a time of worship, but I, I, before we go too, too much further, I, I don't have this written in my introduction. I, I don't have this written down anywhere. And this is not a convenient way to start an evening, but I need to let you know what's happening in my city of Des Moines right now on our campus for Des Moines Salt Company. Um, two weeks ago, uh, there was a blatantly, aggressively racist note that was left under the door of a black student, a minority culture student on our campus. Last week, another note was left, and another, and a robocall was sent to the entirety of our student body at Drake University containing incredibly aggressive white supremacist language I have leaders that are students on our campus who are RAs who have had black and minority culture students turn in their keys and say, we do not feel safe at our school. Today, two more notes were found. We do not get to ignore this. We do not get to miss this. We do not get to look over this. This is a portion of the gospel, the Imago Day in which all human beings were made. If it's your first time here at Salt Company, I can't apologize because this is the gospel that gives me this desire to seek justice for my friends who do not feel safe on their college campus. Before we go into the text this evening, I want us to take just a moment where we are Bow before the Lord and just pray. Jesus, um, to get another email today from Marty, to get another email today from the president of Drake, to hear of more students not feeling safe on their campus. We are lamenting before you how long How long, God, we long to see this change. We long to see you return. We long that one day all of this is going to be gone. You are going to cause the sea to be no more. Chaos will die. Sin along with it. You will return. And the one that we have hoped in, the one that we've sought after is King Jesus. You, you will return. And for now, we can cry out that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. So God, those students who don't feel safe, would there be someone that was, yes, willing to speak up for them, yes, willing to be with them, but yeah, also willing to share this hope that we have, whose name is Jesus. We love you. It's in your name. Amen. Was Cedar Falls? Um, my name is Rudy Hartman. As Michael said, uh, I'm the salt director down in Des Moines. Uh, I got married to the most incredible woman in the world, Molly Peterson. Uh, well, now Molly Hartman, sorry. Molly Hartman, uh, about three and a half months ago. And I just, before we go anywhere, if, if you have a Bible tonight, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to be continuing the series through uh, the book of Corinthians, the first book of Corinthians, first letter of Uh, Corinthians, but while you're on your way there, I just want to let you know you are in such a good house, a part of such a good salt company, such a good college ministry, a part of an incredible church. Um, 
with leadership and shepherding and care that is beautiful, is honored by Michael, but it is so uh, infrequent that you can find a visionary leader who is an incredible shepherd and a fun, kind man, and you have all of that in your director, and it bleeds into the culture and nature of your staff team. You are in an incredibly good place, an incredibly good house. would encourage you to continue to lean in here. I also heard that you guys just wrapped up missions interviews. Who mission interviews? Anyone like do their missions interview, missions application, all of it? Like 16,000 of you. Okay, whatever. Um, sweet. Guys, the, that's super fun. You're going to love going overseas. If you didn't go overseas or if you didn't apply to go overseas, you, you missed out. Hate to break it to you. Next year, you can apply. You can begin to put your applications in. Text read. Just let him know that you're coming. I love my time overseas so much. Guys, we had an incredible experience going overseas, spending two months in both China and Malaysia. Cannot recommend it highly enough to you. But about three weeks into that time while we were overseas, we were having a couple dozen students that were nationals come to our seeker studies, our Bible studies. We, we had an incredible opportunity to lead student to the Lord. We had others who were leaning in, but there was something that was missing in our time there. And if you've ever heard anyone share about their experience overseas, you know what I'm talking about, but there was something that our team was missing, and it was an incredible poop story. I'm not kidding. Like, no one had one of those yet. And I was sitting there like, okay, yeah, we're seeing the Lord move. This is awesome, great. But we want a great poop story to bring back. We so desperately, we were like, everyone on our team, like, we, it was a topic of conversation. We're like, no one has had any of these incredible stories that we hear about when teams come back from being over. We just didn't have any of them. But about week three, uh, we had to take a trip to Hong Kong, one of our students and I, because his visa ran out, so we had to do kind of a border hop, cross the border, come back, and he'd be good for the rest of our time there. And the Lord heard my cry, gave us a poop story, and unfortunately it happened to me. So here's what happened. In the space of three days, I had to poop 33 times. That's not healthy. That's not good. Here's when it happened. He's on the night train. That's right. You know what a night train is? It's where they put in about a, a, the room about this long, this wide. They put six beds. They stack them three high on either side. My friend and I had the top bunks. Over the space of a 12-hour trip to Hong Kong from the city we were in, I got up and down from my bed 12 times to use the bath. I did not sleep. Let's make matters worse, though because you don't get to walk in, it's a, it's a train. First off, those move, right? You're just like this, you're like on the toilet, you're like this. But it's not that, because it's not a Western toilet, it's a squatty, so you're like this. You're just like, this is, it is a dangerous situation, but it's worse than that even still. There's thankfully a bar in front of you that you can grab onto that has never been cleaned, ever, ever. And two weeks prior, I was playing in an ultimate Frisbee tournament on our campus, and I blew out my knee. So here's what it looked like 12 times, this, 12 times. I'm telling you, like there's enough, it was unbelievable. You've got to go overseas, it's incredible. But I'm letting you know, that was insane. And, and, and right about five times in, getting up and down from my bunk, about five times in, you start to swear off. You're like, I'm never eating rogamian ever again. I'm never doing it, I'm just not going to do it. About 10 times and you're like, I'm never eating noodles ever again. Not just China noodles, pasta noodles, anything that says noodles, spaghetti, I'm done. About 20 times and you're like, food, I'm done. I'm just gonna fast for the rest of my life, it's over. 
30 times in, you're like, water, it's done. I'm going to desire to uh, live like Jesus by fasting, uh, do what he did and and fast, and then be with him because I'm going to die, right? Like, I'm done. Like, it's over. I I don't even want to do this anymore. Here's what had started to happen. I'd begun to, to have these thoughts because I so desperately wanted to be healthy again. I so desperately did not want to be have the average 11 times a day on the toilet that I began to establish a law for myself to protect myself from what I was thinking was hurting me. If we're to look at our text in 1 Corinthians this evening, we'll actually find that the Corinthian church is doing something very similar. We find this group of Christians in Corinth who are holding to what is known as an ascetic ethical system that in their mind to protect themselves from indulging in sin, they had run in the opposite direction of some of the licentiousness that was all around them. They were setting these standards, these rules, these laws for themselves to keep them in their mind away from sin. All of this from a desire to to become this pneumaticos, this this idea of this people of the spirit. And they decided that the way they would do this would be to hold to a relational ethic that is broken down in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that abandons anything that could be considered carnal or fleshly pleasure. How do we know that? Well, to this point, Paul has just been going in on the Corinthians. You've heard that for the last six chapters, but here in chapter seven, something changes in the language. We actually see in verse one of this text, Paul writes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, which keys us in to Paul responding to a letter. So it's kind of like we're now getting one side of a two-sided conversation. So we ask the question, what has the Corinthian church written to Paul? Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. Thank you, Michael, for inviting me to speak on this verse. You're very kind. It is good for a man to not have sexual relations with the woman. That is the relational rule, the sexual ethic of the Corinthian church as they have written to Paul. And now Paul is going to take some time to bring clarity, commendation, and correction to this ethic over the next few paragraphs of Scripture This is what they have decided to live by, to swear off in hopes of becoming the pneumaticos, this people of the spirit. But the question is, is that how they can actually do it? Is that true that if they hold to that particular relational rule, that particular ethic, that they will be that way? We're going to see Paul speak into it. Um, at Des Moines, I like to tell our students, if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So I'm going to read the entire section, verse 1 through 17, out loud, and then we're going to jump right into the text. So chapter 7, verse 1, I hope that was enough time, starting with now. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." 
Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. There's your ethic broken down by Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is the rule being lifted up in the church of Corinth, and Paul is bringing clarity to how this may or may not be applied based on the circumstance that the Christians in Corinth may find themselves in. So he begins by looking at the marrieds first in this uh, community of this church in Corinth and asks the question, who are asking the question, if we're married, we're married, should we hold to this? Paul answers that in verses two through four, and it's rather clear. He actually says no. It's clear why in verse two. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Don't miss that. Because of sexual immorality, because of fornication, because of the pornonia culture that existed in Corinth, because of what we saw going down last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 regarding sexual immorality, the answer for those who are married is not to white-knuckle their bedstands and try to flee from any sort of sexual pleasure, but in fact to understand that each man has his own wife and each wife her own husband, and that they are the sole Christian means of a physical, sexual satisfaction. It is as if Paul is saying, hey, you see all of this sexual immorality going on, all this sexual sin going on around you, your marriage will actually be a means by which you and your spouse can draw closer to each other in the most intimate way and simultaneously enjoy the fullness of giving oneself over to the other and curbing those sexual desires, curbing the temptation to sin sexually outside of your marriage. It's like Paul is saying, hey, if you're married and you're choosing to follow this Corinthian relational rule of total celibacy, you, within your marriage, you were actually opening yourself up to a greater sexual immorality, to the potential of it. If you're not looking at your husband for women or your wife for men to simultaneously enjoy one another, one another sexually and fulfill your sexual desires, then you are likely going to look elsewhere 
He's saying it's actually a grace to you that you have a husband if you are a wife and a grace to you if you have a wife if you are a husband to curb these desires. Paul is pushing on the rule of the Corinthians by saying that by trying so hard to run from sexual immorality that you call for absolute celibacy within your marriage, you are more likely to open yourself up to sexual temptation and immorality. But Paul goes even further He actually pushes against a cultural norm within the first century that is exposed in the ethic or the rule presented. Don't don't miss this. It says, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. The the weight of this, putting uh, the, the pleasure on the man solely and the use in this ethic on the woman. So what does Paul say even in response to that? Verse three. The husband should not give to his wife, the husband, sorry, should give to his wife his conjugal rights, her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For if the wife does not have authority over her own body, but, but the husband does, likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now let's take a pause for a moment. Conjugal rights, here's what that means. This is the right to sexual relations between partners. Now, now, while these verses are not combating Paul's clear teaching regarding headship and regarding spousal roles within marriage, it is engaging with something that is incredibly and uniquely Christian at this time. Paul is saying, you are not your own again. The end of chapter 6, he said, you're not your own, you were bought with a price. Now he seems to be saying that in marriage, you are not your own. You are each other's. You are devoted to each other. And at this most intimate place of sexual relations, you are fully one another's. There seems to be an equality presented at this most intimate place within a covenant marriage. You have to understand that in first century culture, a man would have often looked at at his wife as though she were essentially his property. The conjugal rights in this context were the, the man's. But Paul is saying that in this new way of Christ, it's not that way anymore. That's not how this is gonna go down. It's not that sex is sex simply for the pleasure of the man and the use of the woman because such an ethic would, and a belief would actually completely rob the woman of her dignity within the context of the Imago Dei, the image of God that she herself was created in. Would rob that from her. But rather, he's saying that the pleasure and delight and the right to sex within a covenant marriage is to be mutual There is a mutual giving of one another, one to the other, and for each other's satisfaction and pleasure and fulfillment of sexual desires. Christian men in covenant relations, therefore, should strive to be the most caring, giving, and pleasing husbands within our culture, especially when it comes to sex. Sex is an opportunity for the full consideration of the other over self while simultaneously enjoying deeply the giving of yourself to the other. This is a beauty of the gift of marriage as Paul's breaking it down specifically at the level of sex. Satisfaction for sexual desires can be met through the mutual giving of conjugal rights and the giving of one's body to the other for the fulfillment of these desires. Cedar Falls, that now raises a bit of a question. Is there now never a time that a husband or a wife should not have sex within a marital relationship? And Paul actually turns around and says, no, that's, that's not true either. Look at verse five. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer 
but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's like Paul is looking at the married couple trying to follow this rule that the Corinthians have put up by practicing celibacy, and they're saying, we want God more than we want sex. To an extent, that, that's good, right? We should want God more than we want any other thing. But one has to remember, and I think Paul points it out very clearly when he says, for a limited time, lest the devil tempt that clause that these desires for sexual pleasure do exist. And in the brilliance of his creation, God has given a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband to be a gift to and for one another. It would be like you received an incredible gift from someone this Christmas season and your desire to honor them actually caused you to say, thanks for this gift. This is really good for me. I would get a lot of joy out of it. It would help my soul immensely, but I'm gonna put it aside and not actually enjoy or partake of it because I care about you more. That doesn't honor the giver of the gift. The giver of the gift has given it to you because they know that it is best and good for your soul. In this particular context, that is why God gives us this. He, he says, hey, you actually can enjoy one another. You don't have to try to practice celibacy within your marriage. He says you can enjoy one another, fully giving yourselves over to the other person and simultaneously curbing the desires for the sexual immorality that exists all around you. So to this point, we've talked quite a bit about sex, and you may have noticed that often I've tagged uh, sex with the phrase covenant marriage. This is intentional because it is exactly what Paul is doing. In fact, it's as if he says that when it comes to sexual desires or sexual satisfaction, Paul has juxtaposed the two options that are set before all people, and they are these. Um, Sex between a man and a woman within a covenant marriage or sexual sin. A man with a woman in any way that is sexually gratifying, tactical, oral, or otherwise, who is not his wife, sexual sin. Pornography and masturbation, sexual sin. Paul is making this incredibly clear. Sex exists within the covenant marriage. So the question now is how does the Corinthian rule, the sexual ethic, apply to those who aren't in a covenant marriage? How does it apply to those who are unmarried, inclusive of the widow, the single, the dating, or the engaged? Essentially... Does this idea that it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman apply to 90% of this room? Well, let's find out. Keep reading, verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Is this ethic that the... Corinthian church is holding up good for those who are single, those who are dating, those who are widowed, those who are engaged. Paul would actually say yes. His desire is that they would all be as he is, but he recognizes that each has their own gift from God. So we've talked a little about how marriage, the denial of this rule and the partaking of sex for satisfaction, pleasure, safety, and protection is a gift. But then he turns around and says something to those of you in this room who are single that is unquestionably beautiful. In the same breath as describing the beauty of marriage and the gift that marriage is, he says singleness is a gift and it is good. Please don't miss that. Singleness does not equate to brokenness or incompletion. You, if you are single, 
are not less than. You are not broken. There is not something incomplete inside of you. There's nothing wrong with you. Sure, you are a sinner, uh, due for the wrath of God apart from Jesus. But your singleness does not indicate some deep, intrinsic, specific form of brokenness that has resulted in your singleness. It just means your gift, yes, your gift in this moment is different than those who are married. Singleness is a gift. And yet it is super easy for it to not feel like a gift. Right? We can be honest here. Super easy for it to not feel like a gift. Super easy in this cuffing season. I think like everyone in their mothers got, not their mothers, sorry. Everyone in their sister got engaged this last week and it felt like. I'm looking on Facebook and I'm like, this is nuts. Doesn't feel like a gift to be single right now for some of you. But... <laughs> I remember two specific Christmas gifts that I got, one in the Christmas in 99 and another from uh, 2005. I was seven year old, years old at 99, and we had Christmas in North Carolina. My grandma up in North Carolina is dope, and I was pumped as any seven-year-old should be for Christmas. I was like, this is going to be one of the greatest days of my entire life. I cannot wait to see the gift that I receive. And it was a manila folder kind of an official document looking form. And she hands it to me and I pull it out and, and, and it says like, it's a certificate of the purchase of stock. <laughs> and it's a stock, oh no, 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 no. Mm -mm. It's the purchase of Nintendo stock. <laughs> Let me even break this down a little bit further. I could not own Nintendo consoles. My parents wouldn't let us. I wanted the product, not the stock. I owned a part of a company that I could not partake in the joy of. Are you kidding me? I didn't look at that like it was a gift. I looked at it like it was a smack in the face. In 2005, though, your boy got a pellet gun. Now, let me tell you, I loved that pellet gun. Killed many a squirrel with that pellet gun in Florida. And yet... About three weeks after owning that pellet gun, I made a really bad mistake. There was a bouncy ball on the ground. Yeah, okay. There was a bouncy ball on the ground, and I cocked this pellet gun. It was a rifle. I cocked it, pointed it right at it, thinking, I'm going right, to pop this bouncy ball. Yo, I'm not kidding you. I pulled the trigger and immediately felt right here a sting. And I was like, thank you, Je I didn't believe in Jesus, but I was like, thank you, Jesus, that it did not hit my eye, because there's no, I was just gonna pretend. I was gonna have to pretend to see, because my parents would've been like, you're an idiot. You're dumb, like, that's your, this on you. Like, we're not gonna help you. Like, you, you get to the hospital, you're fine. You're, you're like, for it to figure it out, right? Yo, like, <laughs> that, that was supposed to be my gift. How could this thing that would brought me so much joy hurt me? Singleness often feels like the seven-year-old getting the stock instead of the BB gun for Christmas. It's not that exciting of a gift. We almost think it's boring. In fact, we like to take the BB gun around and think that we can go just shoot a couple bouncy balls outside. We just go figure this out, and we end up hurting ourselves. See, what no one told me was that 20 years later, that Nintendo stock would be worth more than any BB gun I could ever buy. Here's why. No one gave me a vision for how that gift that I received when I was seven was actually greater than the gift that I would receive years later. 
When it comes to singleness, I often find that when you hear it's a gift, it's because you, you sit there and you're like, yeah, people have said it's a gift forever. But no one's actually given you a vision for why singleness is an incredible gift that is good from God for you. You're going to learn a little bit more about this when you guys come back from Thanksgiving break, but I want to dig into it right now. If you were to read a little further in this chapter, it would seem as though Paul, while writing this chapter, looks over at the singles in the church of Corinth as he is now, and he says, hey, I get it. You're anxious. The questions that come, is something wrong with me? Will I ever be in a relationship? Will this feeling I have ever leave? Will I always just live in this state of delayed and delayed and delayed gratification and pleasure? And his desire is this. He says, I want you to be free from all anxieties. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 35, he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your, here it is, undivided devotion to the Lord. This is an incredibly practical point. When you become married, your devotion is divided. You have to, if you're gonna be devoted to Jesus, devote yourself to your husband or your wife. Your devotion is divided. But when you are single, that division of devotion does not exist. Now, devotion comes from two Greek words that mean goodness and close beside. Devotion is the idea of being close beside that which is good. Paul is framing in the singleness conversation a different way. It is not that you and your singleness have lost something. It's that you and your singleness have actually gained something. You had this unique opportunity to have an undivided devotion to the Lord. And in so doing, the anxieties of your relationship status fade. You don't walk in fear, but you actually are able to flourish in your singleness. There's a devotion that exists and occurs, and here's your vision for singleness and your attentiveness, your devotion, being close beside his word and his work. Your singleness is a gift to you as you have a space to deeply develop an undistracted devotion to God himself, and in singleness, you actually get to experience a taste of the undivided devotion that you, if you are in Christ, will experience for all eternity. It's a vision for singleness. It's a good thing. It's a gift to you. Your singleness is not brokenness. It's not incompletion. It's a blessing and it's a gift. So the question you might now be asking is, should I just always stay single? Paul actually, Paul's answers actually touches on this. He says he's longing for the Corinthians to be as he was, longing for them to be single if they are single, but does not give full credence to the relational rule, the relational ethic of verse one. Read, read verse nine. But if they, the singles, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Whenever students in Des Moines ask me, sometimes they do, am I called to be single? Am I called to singleness? I usually ask two questions. First one is, do you want to get married? And the second one is, how often do you think about having sex? Pretty simple. You want to get married? How, how often do you think about having sex? If, if you're sitting there and you're like, yes, and often, then you're probably not called to be single. Saying you burn with passion. Just be married. But if it's no and often, you're still probably not called to be single. <laughs> this is Paul's point again. If you burn with passion but decide to elevate the rule over the good desire that exists for both marriage and sex within the marriage that God may one day give you, you will find yourself more and more susceptible to sexual immorality and to sin. Now that doesn't mean just marry the next person who shows interest in you so you can stop burning with passion. That's not what Rudy's saying. Please do not blame that on me. That is not what I am saying. 
doesn't mean stay with someone that you don't actually like just so the burning will stop. But it does mean that you should plant yourself in deep, authentic, biblical community, like a connection group. And as you date, be accountable and authentic to the people who are around you about your relationship as you look for counsel around you for wisdom moving forward, even as you are one who is single and perhaps burning with passion. Paul is maintaining an intellectual and argumental consistency here, which shouldn't be shocking. He is saying that both marriage and singleness are gifts, and they are. That brings us actually to the last movement of this text, verses 10 through 16. Paul understands that in our human nature, we have a tendency to look at the gift that someone else has and say that and and believe and begin to think and become discontent with the gift that we have and become so focused on the gift that they have. People who are are single, he's looking at them and he's like, hey, you're probably gonna look at the person that's married and say, their gift is just better than mine. Burning with passion. Okay, be patient, exercise self-control, but one day move on to marriage should God be so kind to you. But he's also now addressing those who are married in this section who are looking at those who are single and saying they have a better gift. So if I'm gonna really hold to this standard, this ethic that it is good for me to not have sexual relations with the woman, then I just need to divorce my spouse so that I can just rid myself of the temptation of sex. Paul does not give any room for that. At all. Verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Let's just pause there for a minute. What's kind of happening here with the not I but the Lord, not, not the Lord but I stuff? So the word Lord here, kudos, is actually relating to Jesus. Paul is literally saying this is what Jesus in verses 10 and 11 said about marriage. Wives shouldn't separate, husbands shouldn't divorce. Christ's caveat in scripture is unless it is for due to sexual immorality. But why does he then give the next parenthetical clarification? And it's because of this. It's because Jesus doesn't talk about what to do if one of your the people in that relationship, one of the spouses, isn't a Christian or isn't a believer. The Corinthian church, people who were married uh, before they knew Jesus, one of them came to know Jesus and, and is now wrestling with this new ethic, that this relational rule, now that they, uh, within this marital relationship, have come to know and follow Jesus. They're hearing about this is what it means to be the pneumaticos. This is what it means to be a person of the spirit. It means that I'm not gonna have sex with my spouse. Paul's like, hold your horses. That's not what I'm saying. That's that's not what you ought to lean into. Verse 13, if there's consent within the unbelieving spouse to live with you, do not divorce them. He's making it incredibly clear. Don't don't just run out on them because you want to follow this relational rule. You don't get to throw out scripture, what Christ himself has said If they're consenting and saying, hey, I know you're a believer and I'm not a believer, but I still want to be married to you, he's saying, hey, don't, if they consent to be with you, don't run out on them. 
okay, well, if I don't divorce them and they live in a way that they live as unbelievers, how can I be one of those pneumaticos? How can I be a pure spiritual person? Won't my proximity to them cause me to become less spiritual, less holy, less pure? And Paul is like, actually, no. That's not what will happen. In fact, you may have the opposite effect. Verse 14, you might actually be the means of them being made holy. Now, that does not mean that the marriage here to a non-believer saves that non-believer. That would fly in the face of a good portion of Scripture, of Romans particular. It would make you a Savior, and it would rob glory from God. It also flies in the face of verse 16 in which he says, for how do you know wife whether you will save your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? You don't. This is not permission for missional marrying. This is not permission to go marry someone that's an unbeliever so that that person can fall under the covering of your holiness. And that's not what they're saying here. It's not that you save them, but it's that you actually have the opportunity to influence them. You actually may be a means of grace for them to see who Jesus is, to share the gospel with them, and for Jesus to save them. But then we continue to see here that if they want to leave, it seems like Paul's giving credence to let them leave. If they choose to abandon, then it's permissible He's saying, you're not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, let me hang out here for a moment. This choice to leave an unbeliever can manifest itself in a number of ways. I do not have the time to to dig into this as to why divorce is not always this cut and dry. For example, if you have a husband who is consistently and significantly abusive physically to his wife and refuses to leave, is not repentant in any way, shape, or form, this abuse has become, in a sense, a form of abandonment. There's nuance here, but she should leave for a time or forever. It's all, that's circumstantial. That's, that's under the guidance of counsel around you, but you can leave. It's not a call to enslavement, to submission, to abuse, but to peace. So to recap, Paul is talking about this rule that the church at Corinth has lifted up It shows how circumstances actually call for nuance regarding this ethic. If you're married, here's what you should do. If you're single, here's what you should do. If you're married to an unbeliever, here's what you should do. And then he closes this section with verse 17. And this is where we're going to wrap up for the evening. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. When Paul says this, he's using two very specific words regarding the life that the Lord has bestowed or assigned or invited or called each person to. Each person. Here's the issue. The Corinthians are elevating a rule and an ethic which is actually creating a tension between what Paul is saying and what the Corinthians have written and are doing This is the difference between leading a life that the rule demands all people do versus leading the life that the Lord has assigned and called each person to. You understand what I'm saying? The difference between leading the life that the rule demands all people do versus leading the life that the Lord has assigned and called each person to. Here's what happens when we elevate one rule as ultimate. We begin to create barriers to the gospel. We begin to become like the Judaizers who said, you can only be Christian if, which is just a different way of saying, the people of the Spirit are those who, insert ethic here. When we boil Christianity down to following a set of rules, we succeed in creating a people who are more concerned with being seen as rule followers and completely miss the heart behind any of them. 
We succeed in creating a people who are more concerned with what they know and their ability to recite the rules and to actually live a life consistent with them that could lead to flourishing as a human. We create a people who are looking constantly for loopholes to break the rules. And when we look at the rules and treat them as if gripping onto them to fight our sin is our primary means of following after Jesus, then we create a people who trust more in our ability to fight our sin than Christ's ability to conquer it. Ultimately, the elevation of a rule as ultimate, as dictative, as it seems the Corinthians have done with this relational rule, is successful in creating incredibly great Pharisees and legalists. But that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, what it seems, it seems that that's what Paul is correcting when he references leading the life that the Lord has assigned to them, this word Lord is the same one that Paul actually used earlier in verses 10 and 12, and it is referring to the person of Christ. And it's here that we see kind of what Paul is saying in regards to what defines the people of the Spirit. He's saying, we don't follow a rule. We follow a person, and his name is Jesus. We are not following this rule that we've made ultimate. We are following a person and his name is Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we start to create and become a people who long to be with him, long to live like him, long to do what he did. We see a people who are disciples and followers of Jesus. Now, does that mean that we say, we're gonna just follow Jesus. We're gonna pitch out the Bible. This book of codified rules made up of 66 chapters, all of which are there for my restriction. No. That ideology comes from looking at the Bible as something different than what it actually is. The Bible does not reveal a progressing history of rules. It is a redemptive account of the history of the story of God leading to the reconciliation and restoration of all things, focusing on one moment, one event, one person, one savior, Jesus Christ and the gospel event in which God would send his only son to live the perfect life that we could never live and die the death that we deserved, dying for our sin, living for our righteousness. He became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. He takes our unrighteousness from us and gives his righteousness to us and then seals it by raising from the, day, the grave three days later. Following Jesus does not cause us to pitch out our Bibles it actually causes us to cherish the Bible because the living scriptures reveal a living Savior. So no, we don't elevate a rule. We elevate a person, and his name is Jesus. Let me explain a little bit of that. I, I wonder if any of y'all have ever heard of reading Rainbow, right? I might be dating myself. I'm dating myself. I've got some community members. hey oh, Yep, let's get it. All right. <laughs> reading Rainbow. It's an old show on PBS. PVS? PBS. There it is. Yeah. LeVar Barton hosted this, John, and it's where a different book would be featured every week and then read by a celebrity. And then there'd be a, a review or a recap of it made by LeVar, and it would end with this catchphrase. But you don't have to take my word for it. And then someone else would, would cut away to encourage you to, to go ahead and read the book for yourself. And I like that phrase. You don't have to take my word for it. So I can tell you all about this Jesus that we follow and why we should follow him. 
I can tell you all about why we don't elevate a rule over the person of Jesus. We don't follow after a rule that has been made ultimate like the Corinthian church was doing. But we follow a person and his name is Jesus. But you don't have to take my word for it because the beauty is that this word, the living scripture that reveals a living savior is way better than my word. Cedar Falls, I wanna encourage you before we move back into worship and sing this song. I could tell you that Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith, but you don't have to take my word for it because Hebrews 12, 2 says it. I could tell you that Jesus is the good shepherd, but you don't have to take my word for it because John 10, 11 says it. I could tell you that he is the king of kings, but you don't have to take my word for it. Revelation 17, 14 says it. I could tell you that Jesus is the light of the world, but you don't have to take my word for it. John 8, 12 says it. I could tell you that he is the Lord of all, but you don't have to take my word for it because Philippians chapter two says it. I could tell you that Jesus will satisfy every need and every thirst and every desire that you have, but I don't got, you don't gotta take my word for it because John chapter four says it. I could tell you that he is the liberator who the sun sets free is free indeed, but you don't have to take my word for it. John 8, 36 says it. I could tell you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but you don't have to take my word for it. John 14, 6 says that he is. I could tell you that Jesus is your source of life, but you don't have to take my word for it. John 15, 1 says he is. I could tell you that he's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace, but I don't gotta tell you, you don't gotta take my word for it. For it. Isaiah 9, 6 says that he is. And I can tell you that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, but you don't gotta take my word for it. John 3, 16 says he is. That's the Jesus that we follow. We don't elevate some rule as ultimate and create legalists. We elevate Jesus and we become disciples. We look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who is our deepest satisfaction, the one who is the Lord of all. We behold him in the beauty of this book. And as we behold him, we become more like him. We wanna do what he does and we long to be more and more with him. And we do not become legalists and Pharisees, but we become disciples and followers of Jesus, the savior of our souls. As we seek for him in the living scriptures, we start to follow after him, even in what seems like the most mundane things like relationships, in our marriages, in our singleness, in our questions. We look to Jesus. If you know him, rejoice. If you don't, you can come home. But ultimately, we are going to take time even right now and just turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you pray with me, Cedar Falls? Jesus, you are good. Oh, the temptation and threat that we have to, to make up our own rules, to, to create these laws that we think we can white knuckle and save ourselves. But Jesus, you are the one who is savior. You are the one who is good. You are the one who has conquered sin, death, and the grave. You are the one who has shown grace to us, a graceless people. You've shown mercy to us, a people who deserve no mercy. You've shown justice for us, becoming the just, justifier and the one who is perfectly just in and of himself. You are love, you are kindness, you are goodness. You are God and we worship you. We love you. If we don't know you, will we come home to you? And if we do, would we rejoice greatly and know that we can build our lives on you alone? It's in your name. Amen.